When we think of rent burden markets and affordable housing challenges, we tend to think about the big, high-cost metros, San Francisco, New York, D.C., Seattle. But the challenge is really broader than that. And when a challenge is so broad, it's easy to get lost in the numbers. Numbers like a 16.6 percentage point drop in VLI units in the country from 2010 through 2017. In 2010, 55.7% of multifamily units in the country were affordable to very low-income renters. And in 2017, only 39.1% were. That's a material difference. Sometimes, though, it's helpful to look beyond the numbers and get to know some communities, their challenges, and what people and organizations who are rooted there are doing. And there's one state that we'll look at today that's really been at the forefront, trying to get ahead of the affordability challenges before they get out of hand, Minnesota. Hello and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And today we're going to look at the affordability challenges in Minnesota and some of the innovative work being done there, especially in the Twin Cities. We're joined today by Warren Hansen, the CEO of the Greater Minnesota Housing Fund, a leading community development financial institution, as well as the subsidiaries, the Minnesota Equity Fund and the NOAA Impact Fund. So Warren, we're really thrilled to have you here as our guest today. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So Warren, I think, I think we should start with congratulations, right? So GMHF and the NOAA Impact Fund just got a pretty big award from HUD. So uh, how did that come about? Well, uh, we did get an award from HUD, and it was actually a joint award from the National Council on Foundations and the Department of Housing and Urban Development for innovations in affordable housing. And uh, we did apply uh, and offered as one of the uh, things that we work on uh, uh, the um, accomplishment of establishing the NOAA Impact Fund, which acquires naturally affordable housing and keeps it affordable rather than see it uh, turned into upscale housing and, and have the affordability loss. So we've successfully established and um, operated that fund for about three years. We uh, submitted our uh, story or our application along those lines, and uh, we were one of uh, 15 organizations nationally that were picked as uh, award-winning um, candidates. So we we're very uh, appreciative of getting the recognition from HUD and the National Council on Foundations for, for that work. Yeah, and I think that's uh, certainly really well deserved. I'm interested also in maybe looking back as to you started the Greater uh, um, Minnesota Housing Fund way back in the 1990s, right? Maybe you can tell us about... Um, uh, the beginning, uh, as well as, you know, this this re reward that you just recently got. Yeah, well, th just by way of background, the Greater Minnesota Housing Fund was established in 1996, so almost 24 years ago now, and it was really a collaboration between two Minnesota foundations, the McKnight Foundation, which at the time was the state's largest uh, foundation, and uh, Blandon Foundation, which is located in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Uh, it's a kind of an offshoot of something called the Blandon Paper Company, and the founder uh, established this foundation uh, 100 years ago, really. Um, they're the largest 
Rural Foundation in Minnesota. And uh, so they collaborated to establish this intermediary, a financial intermediary at that time. This is before CDFIs were a thing. And uh, its sole purpose was to um, finance the creation and the preservation of affordable housing in rural Minnesota. And over these past 25 years, various needs, opportunities, demands have occurred and um, with economic cycles and natural disasters and floods and, you know, uh, employer uh, job growth. And uh, what, what we've done is responded to these various demands around the state uh, with new programs and other resources. And to make a long story short, uh, we now operate at a fairly significant level in partnership with the State Housing Finance Agency. And we're kind of the philanthropic uh, entity that uh, finances and makes grants and uh, makes equity investments in affordable housing. And the state of Minnesota, the Housing Finance Agency, of course, is the government, a state government entity. And, and it's been, a from the very beginning, a very um, a cooperative arrangement where we jointly fund uh, most projects in Minnesota together. Well, so when when did that partnership with the uh, Housing Finance Agency start? That partnership actually started uh, early on, uh, I would say within the first couple of years. Um, and it, it, it started because of something very innovative that the State Housing Finance Agency in Minnesota created, which has a name <laughs> that... Um, uh, lives on today. It's called the Super RFP or the Super Request for Proposal. And the terminology could be more um, precise, but basically it, it's a, uh, a table where most of the major funders of affordable housing get together every year and jointly align their resources and uh, provide essentially a one-stop shop for the applicants or the developers, the affordable housing developers that are seeking financing from a half a dozen different sources. And it does streamline their work. They have a consolidated one application. They have a consolidated uh, financing process or essentially award process. And then everybody does their individual financing, but it's a, um, um, a very unique, I think, nationally uh, uh, process that the state of Minnesota, through their very enlightened uh, approach, established in the mid-1990s in Minnesota, and, and it continues to today. Well, and you know, today, right, affordable housing gets a ton of attention. Um, back in the 90s, I mean, you guys were starting this early, but what was the attention like on affordable housing then? Well, that's interesting because... Um, uh, we had a governor in Minnesota by the name of Arnie Carlson, and uh, he was hearing from chambers of commerce throughout the whole state. Uh, as governors do, he traveled around the state, met with the business community in different regions of the state um, fairly often. Um, and wherever he went, 
he was hearing that we, we, meaning the employers, were speaking up. The members of the Chambers of Commerce were speaking up and saying, we have a housing problem. The reason, and, 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 and uh, the reason that that is so important to us is that our, we can't attract the workers because there's no place for them to live. I know this is not an uncommon story, but that's what was being heard by this governor, Arnie Carlson, in 1995, 1996. And not only that, uh, we had a clipping service and you, we saw, I would say scores, if not hundreds, but scores of headlines uh, uh, from Mankato, Minnesota, from Thief River Falls, Minnesota, Rosso, Rochester, all kinds of Moorhead, all kinds of locations in every corner of the state, their their hometown newspapers were uh, blasting headlines, uh, proclaiming um, that employers cannot uh, uh, find employees because of a profound lack of workforce housing. So this governor um, uh, created a program, and we were champions of it too, called Economic Vitality and Housing, which was meant to uh, create this linkage in people's minds between the importance of housing, affordable housing, workforce housing, uh, to the economic vitality of these various communities. And in rural Minnesota, uh, there are many communities that have a very major, major employer. So the best example of this would be Rochester, Minnesota, where we have Mayo Clinic um, and uh, tens of thousands of jobs generated by this huge uh, presence of that employer and all the ancillary uh, companies and hospitality industry. And and so that, that employer speaks very loudly when it says, as it does today with a new economic cycle that's very strong, that they have a, a affordable housing shortage, a workforce housing shortage. So back in 1996, that's what was going on, and coincidentally, um, that's what what we're experiencing today. Post the economic recession, where things were very uh, different, and we had different economic and housing issues with foreclosures, but now, uh, of course, it's picked up nationally and in Minnesota. It's also become um, very much a workforce housing issue. So, so Warren, thinking of uh, some of the investments that that you all made back in the '90s and and comparing them to today, like you know, what does that look like? Well, I would say one really big difference between what we're doing today and what we did in in the mid '90s during that era was. Um, uh, throughout our 20-year history, we've had a, a great emphasis and a great appreciation for low-income housing tax credits um, as a vehicle, as a tool to create affordable rental housing. Um, but and so that's been a constant. But I would say in in the early 90s, uh, we also saw a profound need demand for new single-family homes that were starter homes because a lot of our population here was looking to become a homeowner and the employers were very anxious and interested in promoting home ownership for just 
community stability, workforce stability. And we did that very heavily right up until the recession, and then we had to pull back because there was um, um, essentially a lack of capital available for that, and um, we weren't sure what was going on with the economy. And um, today, I would say instead of doing a, a strong push on creating starter homes, we have shifted and uh, see as a more profound and urgent need the preservation of naturally affordable housing, meaning unsubsidized affordable housing. And um, and that that's an opportunity for us to um, prevent the displacement of a lot of the workforce that needs rental housing. And it's also an opportunity to address a larger uh, base or a larger number of um, households uh, who um, are at risk of losing their homes. And so I would say today's crisis um, is really uh, well illustrated by the fact that we're losing so much re uh, uh, unsubsidized rental housing that's just older housing stock. And it's somewhat analogous to how we were losing a lot of single-family homes to foreclosures uh, in the mid-2000s or 2008 era. But today, that crisis is that kind of a crisis where people are losing their homes is happening because of the loss of the um, naturally occurring rental housing that's just older housing stock that's the most affordable and the most um, prevalent. In, in the Twin Cities, for example, 75% of all affordable housing in the Twin Cities metro area is unsubsidized. Never had any subsidy, never will. It's just older and most of the time well-maintained uh, rental housing built in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and it rents for less than $1,000 a month. And you can't touch that rent when you build something new. And uh, so we see that as a priority. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. NOAA is a big part of the market. And I, another uh, number that, uh, in addition to what you just quoted, that I saw in documentation on your uh, NOAA Impact Fund is uh, consistent with what you were suggesting, is that affordable housing units are, are being created at only 1,200 units per year and losing 2,000 per year. Um, is that, uh, that's pretty striking as well, just to see that those 800 units, um, net units are being lost each year. Yeah, and, 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 and actually that is uh, very uh, gut-wrenching for us because that's in spite of the fact that we have mounted the NOAA Impact Fund or this new fund, which I can explain in a little bit, to uh, preserve, acquire and preserve those properties. Um, and yet, if you add it up over the past five years, the Twin Cities metro area has lost about 10,000 units of this previously affordable, uh, naturally affordable housing, rental housing, because the Twin Cities has become 
a, uh, a market for speculation, a market for REITs nationally to invest in and to take profit uh, and to uh, 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 essentially upscale the housing because we have tremendous job growth and population growth uh, in the Twin Cities metro and a, and a severe housing shortage. So uh, unfortunately, I mean, that's a good and a bad story. Uh, unfortunately, that creates a, um, a uh, problem for uh, those residents that are low income and can't afford uh, the higher rents that are happening in this tight housing market. So, Warren, when when you talk about losing the the units, is, is it uh, you know someone new is acquiring the property, tearing it down, and building something completely new on it, or is it just uh, you know significant rehab, or 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 how much is being lost just to sort of natural market rent growth uh, because of the shortage? Well, yeah, I think that that's an important point because uh, there is across the board a uh, an increase in the rents even by current owners who are not selling uh, because uh, rents are going up and and uh, it's typical, it's common, it's normal to charge what the market can bear. And so there is some rent acceleration that's occurring that normal that might not normally occur in a, in a different uh, economy. But uh, we, we're, we're, we can't do anything about that and we don't even consider that a serious problem. What the real problem is is when these uh, older properties, these older rental buildings come up for sale, and they have been coming up for sale at enormous rates uh, the last several years, there is a bidding war among investors, buyers, for these rental apartment buildings. And that's driving the price of these buildings up on a per unit basis, whereas, Three, four years ago in Minnesota, this might be shocking to some of the larger markets to hear about this, but we, we, we were able to acquire these properties and keep them affordable for 80000 a unit or a door. Today, um, they're selling for 130 and 140 so they've almost doubled in price in the last five or six years. And, um, and, and so that's... And to your point, Corey, or your question, what's the most typical thing? An illustration or an example of this is a project in uh, Bloomington, Minnesota, directly across the street from the world headquarters of Best Buy Corporation. They're they're on a freeway, an interstate freeway, but the rest of the neighborhood, a block off the freeway, is really a 1960s. Uh, three-bedroom Rambler-type neighborhood of homes and some apartment buildings, these 1960-era apartment buildings. And a a, a developer, a uh, uh, investor, bought a 700-unit apartment complex, all one-bedroom units, occupied by the workforce uh, all up and down the freeway over to the airport. This is all very um, commercial and uh, you know, hospitality workers and, and janitorial and, and retail clerks and office workers and so forth. Um, and everybody's paying about $850 a month rent. This 
this buyer bought the whole complex, issued a notice and said, you can reapply for your apartment, but the rent will be $300 more a month, and you have to have a credit score of 650 or greater. A lot of these were uh, undocumented immigrants. A lot of these were people who didn't have good credit, but they were regular uh, renters. And uh, so about 1,200 people were displaced overnight in this complex. And uh, the place was uh, rehabbed and uh, improved with new kitchens and shiny appliances and uh, pet spas and that kind of a uh, somewhat superficial uh, set of improvements. We, we see versions of that happening throughout the city or throughout the Twin Cities area. So, so Warren, let, let's talk about some of your uh, your successes with with uh, the NOAA Impact Fund because you you've certainly been able to intervene in in some scenarios and and acquire some properties and preserve them. Yeah, uh, well, and that's uh, I guess that's the good news, and uh, we're very uh, happy with the results of what we've been able to do with NOAA Fund One. And uh, its 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 formal name is the NOAA Impact Fund, and I would explain, I guess, for the benefit of everybody, that this was an interesting combination of uh, funders and investors that uh, created this uh, $32 million fund, including three Twin Cities banks, which happen to be community banks. And I emphasize that because we spent a good year working with a system bank. And uh, we couldn't get anywhere. I mean, there was a lot of uh, good intentions, but just because of the complexity of a system bank. Uh, whereas, by way of contrast, we went to uh, one of the community banks uh, here and met with them on a Thursday afternoon at noon, box lunch, conversation, and they called us at 4 o'clock and they said, we'll do the whole thing. And I mean, that was the profound difference between dealing with a community bank where the decision makers could really be in the room and a system bank where you had to coordinate with, you know, different uh, divisions all over the country. But uh, the, the nature of our f uh, capital stack or our fund uh, investor uh, group here is three community banks, the State Housing Finance Agency, the, uh, the McKnight Foundation, uh, Hennepin County, and Greater Minnesota Housing Fund. And by the way, Freddie Mac provided a $100 million uh, first mortgage uh, uh, commitment for these various um, mortgages that were needed to complete the financing. So we had a real partnership with Freddie Mac on this, and thank you for that. So that's the investor base, community banks, and state and local government and foundations. And then what we were able to accomplish in the last uh, 24th and probably be a total of 30 months of work is we've acquired, uh, we, in partnership with both for-profit and non-profit uh, developers or owner operators, we've been able to acquire 28 buildings, rental properties, and preserve 701 uh, apartment units and keep the affordability as it was, modest increase, but uh, far less than what it would have been had a speculator acquired these buildings. 
and um, um, you know secured about eighty million dollars worth of real estate um, with this uh, equity and um, Freddie Mac uh, first mortgage capital, and that and and that impact has been celebrated by all the investors, recognized as important and. The majority of them, if not all of them, will be uh, members of the fund number two, which we're now capitalizing. That sounds great. And uh, uh, are the rents then uh, sure to stay low for a while, or um, is there any mechanism for that? Well, that's that's the whole point, and I'm sorry I, I missed uh, saying that, that the rents will then be um, preserved at 60% AMI, um, for 15 years. And then we will have been repaid and our investors will have been repaid roughly at year 10, but then we have a, a deed restriction on the property that uh, keeps it affordable for five years beyond uh, our investment. So our investment is in for 10 years, we get paid back at year 10, deed restriction remains on the property for five more years uh, according to the agreed agreed upon conditions that the uh, developers agreed to at the beginning. So we're maintaining the affordability for 15 years. Now, in the case of uh, any of these buildings that we acquired in partnership with a nonprofit, we're pretty confident that the majority of those buildings and, and rental units, those will stay affordable in perpetuity because it's part of the nonprofit um, mission to maintain uh, affordable housing as affordable. Um, and that, that there may be some exceptions to that because of, you know, they, they, they may be changing assets or shifting their portfolio, but um, we have a, a, a strong inclination to work with uh, nonprofit partners for that reason. Yeah, that's great, and uh, and those fifteen years that are uh, almost certain is great too. I notice in fund two that there's also some mixed income where there's a cross subsidy across different unit types. Was that the case? Well, in fund? oh, go and ahead. That, that's another feature of this that we had to uh, deploy as a strategy because um, we, when we acquire these properties, they don't, they're not all. The rents are not all affordable, um, and so um, we are required by the IRS, you know, as a nonprofit, to have at least seventy-five percent of the units affordable. So that leaves a little room to keep some of the rents at a slightly higher rate um, uh, to make sure that the property remains economically viable and, and cash flows adequately. And that does essentially function as a cross-subsidy. So the higher uh, rate, uh, higher rent units, which would tend to be units that have corner <laughs> corner apartments or higher um, on higher floors, these are not tall buildings, but they, they might be on the fourth or fifth floor, uh, those rents typically, or larger units, uh, would typically command a higher rent, and so we tend to use those to generate a little bit of added revenue to keep the properties um, cash flowing and to keep the rents for the affordable units 
as affordable as we can. So, so Warren, it's sort of a naturally occurring mixed income uh, yeah. scenario. Uh, so, so then, like in, in the I have in- one more thing on that. That, <laughs> if I could, you know, another interesting aspect to this mixed income approach is before we acquired, or before our, our partners and uh, and us acquired these uh, NOAA properties. Uh, in in many cases, um, the owners had not been willing to rent to Section Eight certificate holders. And so that that creates another problem in our community where people who have a good Section 8 certificate and are going to be able to pay a market rate rent because of that, uh, but yet have affordability for themselves uh, via the Section 8 uh, voucher, uh, are are turned away by uh, more and more landlords uh, all the time who uh, don't like to deal with uh, property inspections and so forth. So we require all of our all of these properties to accept section 8 and we just did a survey of the properties uh, in the last couple of weeks and now see that 30 to 40 percent of the units are occupied by section 8 certificate holders or voucher holders which means that their rents are typically 30 percent ami and below so we're we're uh Mixed income. We're seeing the mixed income both at a little bit of market rate and a little and a little or significant amount of, of very low income um, uh, renters. The, uh, this is just a really fantastic example of how you bring together multiple capital sources, really with an eye on um, on what you can do in, in keeping units affordable. Um, and I know that. Uh, something that we talked about before. Um, this is this is in uh, Minneapolis, um, and you started out with uh, with a focus on rural areas. And I know that you have coverage in every single county in Minnesota. Um, was it? How, how did you make that transition? Or or maybe you could speak to the differences on on serving the different t- kinds of communities. Well, that's true. Uh, there is a great difference between um, the the metropolitan area and the greater Minnesota or rural parts of Minnesota. But just to clarify, uh, you mentioned Minneapolis uh, as the kind of the the market. And actually the market or the, the region for the NOAA Impact Fund is the entire Twin Cities metropolitan area, which uh, is um, – seven counties in many cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Bloomington, Richfield, Wyzetta, you know, and these are, uh, many of these uh, micro communities or suburban areas have very distinctly different characteristics. Uh, Richfield, for example, is has become a very uh, 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 Mexican, Latino, uh, rich community. Um, and the mayor is uh, uh, Maria Gonzalez, who is the first uh, Latina mayor in Minnesota. Uh, whereas you still have other suburban communities like Wayzata, which is very much a, a high-end, you know, executive, uh, historically uh, a wealthy community. And we're trying to preserve Noah in all of these places because in the uh, um, 
Latino community, you know, they're at risk of being displaced by gentrification. And in the Wyzetta community, they have great schools, and we want to have continue to have some affordability in those uh, high-opportunity areas. But there's a great difference between what's going on in the metro and what's going on in greater Minnesota because we don't have the risk or the threat of loss of NOAA in greater Minnesota. What we have is more a a need to preserve the quality and the condition and the supply of affordable housing stock in areas where there's job growth. So as soon as you get outside the metro, it becomes very apparent that some rural areas of the state have good job growth, good local um, economies, and they need more workforce housing. And so we tend to focus on those communities um, for obvious reasons. But we also have other rural communities that are stable, but they're aging. The population is aging. The housing stock is not remaining uh, good quality. And so we need, we, we feel, we need to invest in the preservation of the existing housing stock. We're not adding stock, but we want the existing rental and, for, uh, for that matter, the single-family housing stock to stay in good repair, to stay safe, decent, and affordable. But we're not adding housing stock in those markets, whereas in the workforce job growth areas, they need added housing stock. But in neither of those situations do we typically see a... NOAA problem, you know, where where a speculator is coming in and going to um, jack up the rents because they can't. The rents are depressed, <laughs> and um, so we have different problems in Greater Minnesota, where essentially to keep the rents affordable, it requires subsidy, um, and um, and uh, it's more of a traditional affordable housing challenge. Yeah. So, so Warren, you mentioned the. The uh, need for new workforce housing, uh, which is you know obviously nationwide really hard to build uh, properties that rent at those you know moderate income levels. Uh, how are you working on that? Well, th- I'm glad you brought that up because I almost forgot to mention <laughs> a new effort that we have underway, and we've done one pilot demonstration project, and we we call it it's a little bit of a misnomer, but we call it new. NOAA. But basically, it is um, uh, new construction, unsubsidized affordable housing, somewhat of the holy grail of uh, um, creating affordable housing. And in other words, um, it's best probably just to describe the project, really just to test a lot of techniques that people talk about uh, and we see it being emulated, or we see this being, we're kind of emulating what we see going on in the private market. We're not sure we want to do it, but we decided to test it out. And that is to build um, middle market, not upscale, not luxury, but more of a modest market rate uh, rental housing project uh, without subsidy. And how affordable could we make that? That was our question. What techniques, what could you do? 
And so uh, to jump to the chase, we financed and worked on the planning of a project that we called Technology Park Apartments, a 160-unit development rental apartment building in Rochester, Minnesota, so right at the heart of Mayo Clinic's workforce housing demand. They need workforce housing in Rochester. Mayo Clinic is growing, expanding. You know, the community is just at, the University of Minnesota just added a medical school down there. There's an unmet need, a great unmet need for workforce housing. We were able to design this rental building and build it. Total development costs of $114,000 a unit. This is less than half of what it costs to build let's say a tax credit project and meet all the building standards that we typically require uh, when we use federal and state subsidy dollars. And what we did, and I'll just give you two or three of the techniques and um, we're evaluating this. We don't know that we would replicate it or you know, we'd, we'd adjust and uh, take stock of whether or not this is uh, what we wanna do in the future if we were to repeat it. But we had to have cheap land. Of course, everybody's looking for that. We had to have um, less parking and essentially no structured parking. Uh, and beyond that, this is uh, where it gets a little bit more creative, uh, we didn't have central air and central heat with all the ducting. We had what are called PTAC units. These are familiar to anybody that stayed in a hotel. <laughs> and you have that unit under your window. Well, they've improved. They're not as loud and clunky as they are in the old Super 8 motel rooms, um, and they're more energy efficient, and there's something better than that called a magic pack, so you can pick different qualities of that, but you avoid the um, HVAC cost. The unit square footages are shrunk. Um, the uh, the um, finishes are are adequate, but they're not upscale. There are virtually no amenities. There may be a small community room, but there are not exercise rooms, pools, uh, workout rooms, um, and uh, patios and so forth. And the finishes on the exterior of the property are, are um, basic. Uh, not a lot of texture, not a lot of articulation in the building, uh, not a lot of balconies, there are some. And um, and so through these various uh, design techniques, which the private sector is doing, we're, we're observing this going on in, in the Twin Cities Metro, uh, where some builder developers are trying to serve this more moderate income or middle income market as opposed to the upscale. And we, we think that that's important. We, we need more housing supply and we need it at all income levels. And there just isn't enough subsidy to do um, the amount of affordable housing that's needed. So we're curious and interested in this notion of smart design, smaller footprints, uh, you know, less parking, and how do you, how do you create affordable housing without subsidy or with less subsidy. So, so Warren, that, that sort of covers the design side and, and the, you know, the choices you made there, but, um, yes. you know, how do you, how do you make all the numbers work? Like, what? Well, and that's 
another important thing. Uh, on that project, Tech, Technology Park Apartments, we did use a great Freddie Mac product, which allowed us to do a non-LITEC uh, forward commitment uh, uh, with the Freddie Mac first mortgage. And that 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 very competitive, hyper-competitive, lower rate uh, interest rate made a huge difference in the uh, ability to end up with lower rents, uh, affordable rents. And then we also, and this is the hard, both of these are, are important. Um, we also put in um, $3 million of our own nonprofit CDFI equity at a lower rate. And so uh, we were able to put equity into this project you know that that was probably half the cost of what market rate equity would be and uh, that's going to be the hard part for us in the future is to find other investors who are willing to take that lower rate for a double bottom line impact uh, investment where they get they get their money back they get a return on their investment a modest return on their investment but they're also um, getting the uh, satisfaction of having a social impact. And uh, we're hoping that maybe the philanthropic community would be a likely participant in that in the future. Yeah, but you know, it's a really great sort of demonstration project that you're able to pull all those things together so effectively. Yeah, and it makes, it makes me think of... Um, well, I, I guess just first, you know, the, all the pieces that are needed to get these things built. Uh, we often talk about how how do you build new units into a market like this, and so to have innovation um, on the on the physical structure side, where you do things like you say with the HVAC, and then um, a couple different areas on the financing side. That's interesting. And uh, just circling back to the the physical unit, as you talk about how those HVAC units are more, you know, efficient than they used to be in the past. I know in your in your study in your book of case studies the rebuilding better neighborhood sustainability was was one of uh, a takeaway point. Um, have you have you uh, how does how does that play into a, uh, projects for you in general? Well, it, it's essentially a a minimum requirement that uh, properties projects uh, uh, meet the energy code, which has improved dramatically over the past 10 years or so in Minnesota. You know, the state energy code is required on all, all buildings. Um, so we've seen the state energy code, and we, we require on all of our projects that it meet the Minnesota Green Communities criteria. But what we've seen is that the state energy code is now essentially if not virtually, at the same level as Minnesota Green Communities uh, requirements. So uh, we've kind of achieved a, a Satori moment here where the state requires uh, the energy code um, standards that we were, ch you know, were advocating for 10, 15 years ago. So that's a, a win. Um, which also and, benefits residents, is that from your yes, perspective? Yes, it does because mm -hmm. it, it, it's healthier um, and it's more cost cost efficient, um, lower cost. Uh, but it, there is that, that is a tension because when you do use some of these other um, lower cost uh, 
appliances and uh, mechanical systems, you are forced to make a decision. Am I going to go green, greener, or am I going to go cheaper at the front end? And it, it's that uh, classic decision that you have to you have to realize the only smart decision to make is to just spend more on the front end because in the long run, you're going to have enormous savings compared to what you might save by going with a cheaper, less green mechanical or appliance unit. So we, that, that's where things can slip. And, um, we haven't compromised on that, but we, we're aware that that's one of the pressures that maybe the private sector is is dealing with differently. Yeah, so Warren, you mentioned with all the sustainability work, uh, also a focus on how this is better for residents, and, and uh, I think we saw in your report some health aspect as well. So, And this is something you know we've been seeing a lot more interest in the market. Are you guys focused on health and housing as well? Well, we are uh, very much, and it really uh, it really uh, began uh, this year, 2019, with uh, an effort that we've launched to convene. And these are meetings that have not happened yet, but we have the benefit of having um, uh, an agreement and a willingness from uh, three state agency commissioners, the Commissioner of Housing, the Commissioner of Health, and the Commissioner of Human Services, who are all willing to co-convene a uh, a cross-sector series of meetings, which will happen in the fall of this year, among health care organizations, including hospital systems, and uh, managed care organizations or the health insurance companies as one sector and the housing field or the housing sector. And um, we have, we're benefiting greatly from really important and good work that's been done by um, Robert Wood Johnson and Mercy Housing and Enterprise uh, that have all those organizations and and actually many others have been uh, exploring the uh, opportunity for linking their uh, healthcare activities with a housing first approach, especially for the high users of healthcare. So um, one great example of this was United Healthcare, which happens to be based here in Minnesota, but they did a incredible uh, um, project and program in Phoenix, Arizona, with uh, Chicanos por la Casa, where they uh, combined a federally qualified health clinic and the acquisition of, uh, I think it was 200 units of, of uh, NOAA housing and uh, served the residents more uh, um, extensively with health care, wellness, and clinic services to reduce the cost and improve the health outcomes of certain populations, including people who had diabetes or were chronically obese or had COPD or these chronic conditions that if they're not managed, uh, people's health really deteriorates very quickly 
And of course, they end up in the emergency room and, and it's uh, more expensive for uh, the overall system. And they've been able to achieve, you know, um, uh, savings and, and improved health outcomes as, as an example. But there are many other examples around the country. And in Minnesota, um, we have Hennepin County Health uh, Care and um, 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 other groups that want to explore this with us. So that's an area of interest to us. Uh, we have a design for a health and housing fund that would uh, potentially be invested in by health institutions. Um, and uh, we have one health uh, uh, system, health uh, care system, a hospital system, I can't mention their name, but they're interested in an anchor institution approach to investing in uh, affordable housing around their hospital or hospitals. They have hospitals around the state. And uh, this might not happen in a lot of locations, but in certain locations, they'd be interested in exploring an um, anchor institution strategy where housing would be created uh, you know, adjacent to or in proximity to their hospital for certain high-need populations. So, so innovating on workforce housing construction, innovating on NOAA preservation, and now uh, health and housing, which is which really seems to be like a next frontier. Uh, yeah, in the housing market, and and it, and it, and it's it's a it's also a little bit of a more mysterious, you know, uh, uh, question to solve, you know. Uh, because the housing people <laughs> don't know healthcare, and the healthcare people don't know housing, and so there's there's going to be a lot of learning going on. In each, so it's a learning process for for everybody concerned. <laughs> well, Warren, certainly, uh, you know, wish you luck in in all that work as you as you move forward there. And really, thank you so much for for joining us today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, and can't wait to you know follow more of your work and hopefully bring you back on. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to visit, and uh, I'll look forward to listening to all of your podcasts. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.